We, we had a whole routine we were going to do, but Rob canceled it. <laughs> it's going to be splits and everything. It was amazing. Good morning. Um, okay, so this is my one uh, public service announcement. The things that I'm going to talk about that are happening in Haiti are extreme, and so if you're easily triggered, now is your chance to escape. Okay, that's it. So um, you've been warned. So I'm not here to ask for money or a donation. I'm here to tell you about Haiti, and then I'm here to plea for the people that I love there and ask you to pray. Haiti is a mess. And if you're a first-time visitor, I'm not going to go into the history of Haiti. If you've been uh, here for very long, I've, I've told you about the history of Haiti for a long time. So we're going to fast forward a little bit. Um, right now, the uh, prime minister who's been leading Haiti since the last legal election 10 years ago, who's been accused of murdering the president, who was assassinated at about that time, went to Kenya to try to get Kenya to to follow through on their promise of support for Haiti. Um, he is currently out of the country. Ruling Port-au-Prince is a cabal of about 200 different gangs. There is a gang leader, and you can't make this stuff up, his name is Barbecue, and he's an ex-police officer who is trying to put together a federation of gangs in order to keep the international community from coming in and restoring order because they have no intention of relinquishing their power within the city. So um, yesterday they attacked the prison, which is, was built for about 700 and houses about 3,000 hardened criminals. A lot of those escaped. Um, they attacked the airport in order to keep the prime minister from returning and killed a whole lot of police officers. In the entire country of 11 million people, there are 9,000 police officers. And a lot of those are dying and several died yesterday. Kenya promised to send 1,000 more, which is a drop in the bucket. The level of evil in Port-au-Prince has escalated steadily. So there were 5,000 murders last year. Um, that doesn't include the nearly that many kidnappings or the amount of rapes and sexual assaults that happen there on a daily basis. Uh, most recently, and, and of course, I think Bastia, I, I get videos from him every day. Everything in Haiti is filmed on a camera, it feels like. So the graphic nature of the videos is appalling. Um, I can tell you with my own eyes the things that I've seen. Evil runs rampant through the streets of Port-au-Prince. And there is one gang in particular that's posting pictures now of them eating the bodies of the people they kill. And I think part of that is psychological terror, like every terrorist in the world. They, like ISIS, they want people to think that it's very dangerous and frightening to come into Port-au-Prince, so don't do it. So they're, they're filming and, and putting these things out. Into that mix, there was a man named Guy Philippe. He overthrew our, our, Aristad back in 2004 and led a, 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 like a paramilitary group to do that. Um, and then when he was done with that, he went back to drug running and smuggling and all the things that he did until he got elected as senator. And in Haiti, if you're an elected representative, you get immunity, which was why he wanted to be senator. But the day that he was supposed to be sworn in, he ended up getting arrested for drug running, and the U.S. picked him up and extradited him back here and charged him with bribing people and drugs, and they put him in a federal prison. And he served eight or nine years and got out at the end of last year, and then the U.S. government sent him back. The problem is that 
Well, Port-au-Prince is a horrible place. Our mission is in the Central Plateau. And so it's been relatively protected and relatively quiet in the Central Plateau. We were still able to build the clinic and put in the driveway. And we were still moving forward with trying to get medicine happening there because we could, because it wasn't crazy yet. But Guy Philippe, his home, his home territory is the Central Plateau. So when he got sent back, he went to our part of Haiti and immediately began raising political forces with the uh, battle cry of I'm gonna overthrow everything and make it better. The police then had to engage with him and they said, you know, don't, don't arm yourself, which of course immediately happened, and they went into Inch. Inch is where Pastor Bostian and his family live. It's where one of the two churches that we support is, and it's very close to where the medical mission is. It's also where the hospital and Dr. Felice, um, Felice, Philippe lives. So uh, that led to about one month ago, war breaking out in the streets of Inch between police forces and Guy Philippe's forces. Guy Philippe came to Pastor Bastia and asked for support. Um, he asked him to support him in his bid for power. And Pastor Bastia said, I, I follow God, not man. And that made things scary. And it's gotten increasingly scary. And a couple weeks ago, um, he said, I, I don't know what to do. It's getting so much worse so fast. And as a board, we recommended that he leave Inch. And so he took his wife, his four daughters. Um, as I said, sexual assault is an issue there. So protecting the women of his family is important. They're teenage girls plus his wife and a small infant son. And they fled. And they're now in hiding, not in Inch. Um, the, the airport in Capetian still receives missionary flights. And that's how Bosti has gotten in and out of the country. He has a green card and he has a visa. So he can come back and forth. His family have passports and only that. So um, he can't leave with them unless there's visas. And visas are hard to come by. When I called Neil Dunn's office to ask for assistance getting visas, he said that his office wasn't the right place to look for help. And if we knew anyone personally in the State Department or in the Department of Immigration, that we should look for personal contacts. I don't have anyone in that. But if anyone in this congregation has a contact that you think might be useful, please find me later and I'll, I'll chase that down. So um, that's what's happening with our friends and our family. Because in Haiti, which is so dark right now and so evil, the church is still meeting on Sundays. The last video I had was of a funeral of a beleaguered church that was interrupted by gunfire and everyone was since scattered. The people of God are there, and they're still trying to gather, and they are overwhelmed. Bastia said, I feel like I'm living in Sodom and Gomorrah, and I don't know what to do, because they can't get out. No one can get out unless you have a visa. And in the face of this, and in the face of so many things, it's easy to feel overwhelmed and to wonder what on earth could we possibly do. And, and to that, I can only say that Tragedy without hope is a lie. It is a lie. And it is a lie because, because of this scripture in Ephesians. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, 
but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all of the flaming darts of the evil evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and all supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me that words may be given to me, opening up my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. That was Paul's prayer. That is Bastia's prayer today. When I asked him how to pray, this is what he answered. God, please hear the cry of the Haitian people in the midst of gangs, violence, and civil war. In the same way you saved Lot's family, please do it for mine. So that's Bastia's prayer. But as the church, as the family of God, I'm asking you to commit to pray for these people. No one in our country talks about it. The Miami Herald has a few articles. You're not going to see it on TV. Haiti is close, and we have people there. We know people there. You've supported people there. Please put a reminder on your phone. Put it inside your Bible. Put a star on your wrist that makes you think about it. But please pray without ceasing for Bastia, his family, and the people of Haiti. On that note, I'd like to just close with prayer, and then I'll hand it over for Rob. And thank you for listening to me. Lord, I lift up Haiti today. Lord, I pray for peace. Lord, I pray that um, that you would that you would save Haiti. Lord, darkness flees in the presence of light, and you are the God who sees. You are the God who saves. You are an all-powerful, all-knowing omnipresent God. There's nothing you can't do. There's nothing you won't do. And you always win. Lord, I pray that you would save Haiti, that you would save the people of Haiti. Lord, I pray that you would hide Bastia and his family until it's safe. Lord, I pray that if it's not going to be safe, that you would remove them to a place of safety. Lord, that you would miraculously provide visas. Lord, in the meantime, strengthen the church. Lord, in the places where they feel hopeless and forgotten and unseen, Lord, encourage them. Let them feel seen. Let them feel heard. And Lord, remind each of us regularly and often to pray and intercede for our brothers and sisters there. In your name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Kim. I think think I'm really loud. Uh, But yeah, we'll definitely take that up. And we definitely want to to keep that as as a, a concern of our prayers. Keep that before the Lord, because that's uh, that's a that's a terrible thing to see, and especially when we're so connected to it. And so, uh, we'll trust that God intervenes in ways that rescue and help. So, uh, so uh, it's kind of a hard thing to transition from that, because that's kind of heavy. But uh, we'll. Uh, we're going to move ahead and, and uh, get into our, our study this morning. Uh, last week, we finished up a, a short series that we did on, on the values and the purpose and the vision of Eastgate as a, a church community. 
Um, and, and part of that explanation had to do with our origins uh, uh, as a church, you know, the beginning uh, of this church. And the beginning of a thing is a tricky concept when you really start thinking about it. Because I could have started the story of Eastgate's beginning on the date that we became a 501c3 nonprofit organization, April 15, 1995. There's the beginning. But it could also be argued that the history leading up to, to all of that, that date really was the beginning of this church, such as my experience in the crazy church or, or the small house church that we started. Maybe that was the beginning. Where does the beginning really begin? Uh, and the concept of beginning may actually be affected by, by uh, what a person is looking for in an origin. For instance, a church historian might want to focus solely on the formation of a house church and what all happened there, whereas a psychologist might say, oh, no, we got to go way back into that guy's childhood. And I don't know, do psychologists make that <laughs> gesture? I don't even want to know if they do. But uh, So we're starting a new study today, and beginning is the prominent theme of that. So if you've got a Bible or a Bible app with you today, if you'll find your way to Genesis chapter 1. Um, if you're not sure where Genesis is, <laughs> let me introduce you to the Bible. And the very first book that you'll come to in this Bible uh, is the book of Genesis. Normally we reserve Sunday morning for a time when we focus on the New Testament, and of course that's going to always be my focus. I'm committed to bringing this back even to the gospel story on a regular basis. But I've just had a real passion for Genesis uh, lately, and I... And I really felt impressed to, to, to go into this. Um, but before we begin, I need to address uh, some things as far as expectations go, uh, as you're there and you're listening to me talk. Uh, the first several chapters of Genesis, which is going to be the focus of this study, we're not doing a full thing on all the chapters of Genesis, we're going to focus in on the first, uh, the first uh, chapters that that are there but the the first chapters of genesis i mean it opens up a world of questions and mysteries that inevitably leads to controversy and that's just a reality without a doubt genesis is a controversial book at least within that first framework in the united states since the mid 1920s the debate between young earth creationists and modernists has raged on and on and on. And the dividing line between evolutionary science and, and six-day creationism has widened and grown ever more hostile towards one another uh, as we've gone. So in terms of setting expectations, I want you to know that I have no interest in joining that debate whatsoever. You may have heard me say before that, you know, since I wasn't there, I really don't know how the original creation went down. To me, if we begin with the words, God created, then I mean, it really, to me, it doesn't matter if it took six days or six billion years. And I know for some that that, that may not be an acceptable response. I recognize that. Uh, and so I'm acknowledging that we may be viewing this differently. But to me, uh, as long as God is the source, you know, there's, there's, there's room for, for differing perspectives. Now, some have elevated this, this argument of creation and six-day uh, young earth 
to a level that a person's salvation is considered on the line, depending on how they interpret the Genesis account. I want to make it very clear, I do not agree with that position at all. I think that's uh, a wild departure from where we should have been in reading uh, Genesis and interpreting it. Because interpret, interpret is the operative word in this. Uh, Genesis must be interpreted. Let's do something. If, if you've gone to Genesis 1, if you're there, if you've got it in front of you, uh, I want us to all read verse 1 together. Whatever verse it is that you're using, I'll put it up on the screen as well, but I want to, I want to read it all together in one voice. Are you ready? Let's read. Bereshit bara Elohim et hamashayim ve'et eharetz. I get it. See, you guys were reading it in English. And that makes sense. It does. But see, Genesis was written in Hebrew, ancient Hebrew for that matter. And in order to understand what it's saying, we have to have it translated to our language. But I contend the translation of the language is only part of the process that we need to undertake in order to interpret this Bible. We also have to translate the cultural environment in which this document was created as best we can with what information we have. One of the things that I've been passionate about when teaching through the Bible has been teaching the historical setting of the text because it reveals so much about what it is that's being said in this. When we learn what the world was like for the first readers, we can better see how to apply it to our world and our culture in those areas where those line up. And I'm pretty adamant about identifying cultural and historical contexts of God's word before trying to assume, or I would even say presume, to understand it and apply it in our world. Dr. Tim Mackey illustrates it as being a good tourist in the biblical world. So if we go to a foreign country and we walk into a local restaurant there in some foreign country, we're not going to go in and order a Big Mac and fries, right? We want to be, we want to be culturally aware and sensitive in order to be a good tourist. And so we need to be good tourists in the Bible as well. We need to understand the culture and the perspective that it's coming from. And one of the big difficulties we have when coming to a book like Genesis is we, uh, we tend to assume that Genesis is there to answer the questions we are asking as 21st century modern Westerners. Sort of like ordering a Big Mac from the text. Dr. John Walton regularly reminds us that while the Bible was written for us, it was not written to us meaning that we need to put ourselves in the cultural and historical setting that's there in order to to see what was being addressed before we can start making the move over to our world and applying it to ourselves. You get what I'm saying in that? Are we we tracking on this? Okay, so we're going to use a word today that you may not be that familiar with. It's not a word that you're going to probably use in everyday life. Uh, You're not going to use it at McDonald's or anything like that, but it's an important word as we go. And it's the word cosmology. Cosmo- who's familiar with cosmology? Who uses cosmology on a regular basis? Yeah, then all the hands go down. That's, okay. Cosmology is the study of the structure and nature of the known universe, how it's formed, how it's organized, based on what we're able to observe and recognize. So an example of this is if I were to ask you what our solar system is like, you know, we live on a planet, our planet is in a solar system, what is our solar system like? Well, 
we'd say we've got a star at the center of it that we call the sun, and orbiting around it are eight planets and 146 moons and a few little dwarf planets in there as well. And our planet, Earth, is the third planet out uh, from the sun. we, we wouldn't even really have to think about that that much. That's the cosmology, that's the world that we've grown up with, that what we've observed and recognized as, as, as how, how things are working and functioning around us. It's part of our modern cosmological view of astrophysics. And it pretty much informs all of our understanding about how things in, work in the universe we live in. Our modern cosmology is based purely in physics, the mechanics of what it is that we can observe, what we're able to measure and see. It has no room for another important word. It has no room for metaphysics. Metaphysics deals with abstract concepts like spirituality uh, to define reality and our understanding of reality. So we would say like religion, the pursuit of religion is a metaphysical pursuit because it's about something that is more of an abstract construct. I know what you're thinking. Rob, this is so boring. Is the whole teaching going to be like this? No, no, no. But, but it's important. Uh, These are important terms that we need to know because the cosmology that we have as 21st century American Christians is vastly different from the cosmology of the ancient world which gave us this Bible that we're reading, which we've had to translate from Hebrew, which we also have to translate culturally into our modern world. And the problem in that is that we may try to go to this Bible looking for it to affirm our cosmology when in fact our cosmology is nowhere in view in this ancient text. Does that make sense? Are we tracking? Okay. So our modern cosmology, our, our way of viewing the world, it's not something, it's just something that we grew up in. We're steeped in this. We didn't really even have to think about it. When I say, you know, what's our solar system like? Nobody has to sit down and really try to devise something or borrow something from somewhere. It was just, this is the way we view the world. This is what we know. And, and, and so our modern cosmology is based in physics. It's, it, it's what can be physically observed and studied. I would go further and argue that modern cosmology only allows for physics, only allows and, and believes that all meaning and value is derived from physics, what we can physically observe and study. Ancient cosmology, on the other hand, was based on metaphysics, and it was deeply grounded in spirituality. And it was spirituality that gave the world meaning. Theirs was not so much the construct as much as what was behind the construct. Are we following so far on this? So this is going to be a challenge for us as, as 21st century people living in the world that we've grown up with, answers at our fingertips through our phones and everywhere else. It's going to be a challenge for us to take up the difficult task of putting our cosmology aside and read this text like an ancient person, to read it as an ancient would. Now, okay, I'll give you a second. Okay, Uh, but this is not to say, and understand this, is a very important qualifier. I mean, like probably like one of the most serious qualifiers I'm going to get. So if you're not hearing, or if you've tuned out a while back, tune back in just for a second and understand that we're not saying that we have to adopt an ancient cosmology. Do you see what I'm saying in that? Uh, And there are people who have, 
There are people who do not believe this earth is a globe right now because, yeah, in a sincere effort to, to adopt the ancient cosmology which gave us the Bible, you know, they're just going to reject astrophysics. Uh, so so we, we're not saying that we have to adopt an ancient cosmology, but we need to use that lens in order to interpret what it is this Bible is saying to us, right? So we're, we're going to find right off the bat that Genesis's view, Genesis's the view from Genesis on the structure of this world is wildly different from our modern view. And I'm largely convinced that the origin of material things, this, this stuff that's all around us, this world and the universe, etc., I'm largely convinced that it is only an implicit concern in the book of Genesis. The primary focus is on the order and the purpose of the world and the cosmos that we live in. To me, all of the debates about material origins and six days versus six billion years is really missing the point of the text, which is offering us a theological picture of an ordered, purposeful world with Creator God at the controls. That's what Genesis is trying to declare to us. We live in an ordered, purposeful universe that God has made and that God is in control of, or is, is, is intended to be the, in control of. And from that vantage point, look, if a person finds solace and encouragement in a six-day creation timeline, I believe that could be leaned against this text and not collapse. But if a person feels more grounded in accepting scientific observations that indicate a longer time frame from the world's development, I think there's room for that view as well in the text. I don't believe there has to be a battle between the Bible and science. And the reason that I hold that tension is because Genesis is not a science book. It is a sacred text revealing spiritual truth to our lives. That transcends all that. Because if it were a science book, and if it were only here to leapfrog the ancients and provide for us a modern cosmology, well, man, I think about all of the people that get skipped in that whole process, that, that Genesis would honestly have not that much to say to them. Because our modern cosmology is only about 100 years old. You go back prior to that, and there's all kinds of changes that have been made o- over that time. So this, so it's setting your expectations, right? That's how I want to approach this Genesis study. Uh, we're going to read it from a theological perspective. And I may say some things along the way. I may have already said some things that goes cross-grain to a view or a belief that you've held about Genesis and always have. And I'm going to say, as I do with all of these studies, that you don't have to agree with me uh, on these things. I've done my best to study this and to research this, and I'm giving you my best take on this for your consideration. Uh, but, you know, as with all of these things, follow the Holy Spirit. Follow the guidance that God gives in this. And I'm not telling you how you have to believe. I'm just offering you these perspectives for your consideration. But, 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 but be willing to consider and even reconsider differing points of view. There's a spiritual healthiness that comes along with that, that practice. Okay, so, so 
we'll get into this. Our study is going to be focused, as I said, on only the either the first three or first four chapters of Genesis. This makes this study really strange for me because normally I have all this stuff mapped up uh, out a long time ago, but I'm kind of working through that a little bit. But I believe that there are a series of patterns that are revealed in this narrative which help us in understanding the whole rest of the Bible's story. Genesis, the word Genesis comes to us from Latin, and it's a word that means origin or source or beginning, and it's named for the opening line of the text, uh, Rashid, beginning. The book doesn't state who wrote it, but it has long been held to uh, the view that has long been held that Moses uh, was the author of this. The context of the first four chapters of Genesis are intended to show us that the world was not always like it is right now, like our present world. Like everything that we heard this morning about what's happening in Haiti. And, and we look around at the world and we see the pain and the heartache and all that's present here in this world. Genesis is there to tell us it wasn't always this way. This was actually not the original intent. The chaos and the sin and the struggles that we face, they were not part of God's original picture. And that's a truth that runs like a line through the whole biblical narrative. And, and the gospel hope that Jesus gave us for a new heaven and a new earth isn't a hope for something that's never been. It's about a return to an original order that we've never known. That's the whole idea behind it. This is why Genesis is important, because we need to know where we started to better understand where it is that we're going what it is that God is intending to do through all of this. Not a disembodied heaven somewhere, but a creation ruled by God, a kingdom of God. God's grace is another picture that we're going to see, that his way of resolving the ruin of his creation by sin isn't simply to destroy the thing, but to reconcile and redeem his beloved creation so that we, as Paul describes it, now are given this mission of reconciliation, calling as through Christ to come back to God. And God is at the center of what Genesis is revealing. You know, the the thing about fallen humanity is that we have always, always uh, distorted our concepts of deity. It's one of the first things that seems to happen. And Genesis makes bold declarations about God's nature, about who this God is. And in some ways, it's kind of like ancient religious smack talk that's happening here, elevating this revelation of the divine over the contemporary views of the surrounding world. Genesis, really, is a commentary on ancient religious beliefs, something we'll kind of get into a little bit more uh, as the study unfolds. Genesis isn't just braced against ancient concepts either. It barrels over our modern views as well, because while we may not reduce God by carving tiny little images of him and spreading him out into a bunch of pantheistic deities, we reduce him by making him a detached, uninvolved figurehead, someone who's just back in the background somewhere while we amble through life doing our thing. Genesis shakes us out of that conceit, revealing to us an ancient yet active and present creator God, a God who not only created us with purpose, but who will also require an account of us for how it is that we use this gift of life. In Genesis, we glimpse the kingdom of God and we see what Jesus, the new Adam, intends in his declaration of God's kingdom, the redemption of this world and what that will look like. All roads 
of our Christian faith have their start in Genesis moving forward. And if we can move past all the sidetracking debates and get to the truth, the deep truth that this book reveals, I believe our faith will become that much richer for it. So so much more uh, in Genesis than just a scientific debate. So uh, that's my introduction uh, for this study. Now we'll just get into this study proper. And, and we're going to begin by looking at verse 1. Uh, and that's uh, all we're going to get to today. Uh, uh, so uh, we read it all together before. Uh, let's, let's look at it again. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So many different ways you could read that. But man, it seems like such a simple statement, right? Like, we get it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Ooh, there it is. Move on. I mean, it seems like that until we settle in and start thinking about it a little bit. Then all of a sudden, all those mists of simplicity seem to part, and we see these giant mountain peaks that we've got to try to climb up. I mean, in the beginning. The beginning of what? I don't know if you've even stopped to think about that, but the beginning of what? Uh, You know, most of us, I'm going to say, when we say the beginning of what, already have an answer for that question up in our minds. And it's firmly rooted in a modern cosmological understanding of the world. But, like we said at the outset, beginning, that is a tricky concept. And its definition often depends on a person's expectation. We know it's not the beginning of God. I mean, he's the active agent in this story. I mean, so it's, uh, it's not the beginning of everything. God is an assumed previous reality. And to make this task even less simple, the Hebrew word that's used here, a sheet, it can refer to a point in time, or it can refer to a period of time. Uh, it's just the nature of the word that was used there in the Hebrew. That's why in the footnotes of the NLT that we're reading this from, it says, or in the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, or when God began to create the heavens and the earth, there are nuances to this word, reshit, and it has to be interpreted. It, it may be the beginning point in time for the creation of all matter, or it may mean during this initial time period as creation was being formed. I mean, that's just the reality of the language that's employed there. I'm not trying to, I'm giving you both options. It could be either or. Uh, And so we have to ponder this idea, beginning of beginning, but that God is the active agent in this beginning, that is clear, right? There's no question on that. So, you know, so what we're going to be considering here is God's work, what it is that God is doing, and that is the most important truth of this opening declaration. We are getting a revelation here of God. Bara Alahim, God created. Without question, God is the one doing this. That's simple. But then it gets complicated again because bara, translated in English as created, it's translated as created almost universally in every text. And again, we have to understand created in terms of of the way it was written in Hebrew, not in 21st century Western terms. And honestly, actually created even in English 
has differing meanings depending on the context. If I do a painting and someone says, oh, that's one of Rob Woodrum's creations. Well, they're not saying that I went out and picked cotton and spun uh, the cotton out and then wove it together into a fabric and gessoed it and then took pigments and crushed them all up and put binders with them. And the, No, nobody's saying that about my creation. No, they're saying that I used those materials to organize an image with those paints on the canvas. That's my creation. So even for us, created is a nuanced word depending on the context or the expectation that's there from the one who's writing it and the one who's reading it. And listen, there's a Latin phrase that was coined in the 1800s. Creatio ex nihilo. It's been the rally cry, especially since the 20s, meaning, meaning creation out of nothing. Creatio ex nihilo means that God created all of matter out of nothing. There was nothing there to begin with. And that phrase, it applies to God's creative work, that God as original source created all physical matters out of nothing. And I believe that phrase. I believe that. I mean, if we start with the premise there is a creator God, then somewhere back in this history, there has to be a moment where out of nothing, God created all things. And I believe first, or rather Colossians 1 testifies to that idea that God created all of these things. While I believe God created all things from nothing, I recognize that we, as modern people, have to be careful not to impose that meaning of creation, of matter out of nothing, onto the word created in Genesis 1. Have I lost you guys yet? Are you able to track uh, with me? Okay. I know this is complex, but it's really, really important. And it got me excited. Maybe it'll get you excited. I don't know. Or maybe you're just waiting to get this over with. And it, believe me, it's quick. It, well, no, it's not. But it's almost done. That's what I'm trying to say. Our modern worldview, and this is the worldview we all grew up with, has taught us that physical matter is the most important thing. That's what we've all been taught. I mean, we're told that matter is all there is. If it's not observable, it's not real or important, whether it's God or ghosts. It doesn't matter if it doesn't have matter, is our thinking on it. If it can't be observed and weighed and cataloged, it is not significant and likely not real. That's the mindset of modern society. That's why when we read God created, we immediately think material origins. That's where all of the matter came from. But that's us, again, demanding a Big Mac from from an Italian cafe. Because material origins was not likely the concern of the ancient writer of Genesis. When we look at what we learned, what we've learned in especially recent years about the worldview of the ancients of that time, when we look at the religions of the surrounding people, And we find that in their creation accounts that the greatest exercise of creative power by the gods wasn't in manufacturing tangible things, but it was in determining the destinies of lands and peoples and nations and kings. In those creation accounts, it was always the assigning of their purpose and their destiny in the world. Uh, and, And if we use the ancient world as a key... Instead of our modern worldview, Genesis begins to read differently. And and I contend it takes us deeper than we've been before, than we've deeper waters than we've swum in before. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, literally in the Hebrew, the sky and the land. And there's a whole cosmology just in that phrase, which we'll get to next time. But for now... Let's take some time this week to reflect on the reality 
that God is our maker, that he determines our destinies. He is ancient, he is active, and he is present in all of these things. And that his purpose is the ultimate purpose for life. If we all have come from this God, created with a purpose, then that makes every one of us deeply significant in this world. This world in its present state is not the way God intended the world to be. It shouldn't be like this in Haiti. It shouldn't be like this in, in Israel. It shouldn't be like this in the Ukraine. It shouldn't be like this in, in the streets of Chicago. It shouldn't be like this. It was never meant to be like this. And every person in this room knows when we see these tragedies unfold, it wasn't supposed to be like this. We were supposed to be able to go out and live in peace and with harmony, with the sense of safety and the, 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 the hope of provision from a loving Father. But something went wrong. And that's what Genesis reveals to us. God brought order from the chaos in the beginning. He's going to do it again at the end of the age. And right now, as we look to Him and we trust Him, we'll find His grace uh, giving us stability in our lives, even in the midst of all of the chaos that's all around us. Because we're armed with the knowledge that the same God who brought order from chaos in that primordial world will also bring order from chaos in our hearts and ultimately bring this world back to His original intent. Right on? Find hope in that, you guys. Father, we thank you so much. If you'll stand with me, please. We thank you so much for what it is that you reveal to us in your word. And I pray, Father, that that you, by your spirit, will enable us to reach out and grasp a hold of these deep truths that you've revealed to us right at the beginning of the story, to provide us the hope we need to be like Jesus and overcome this world to be able to transcend above these things, armed with the knowledge that you are creator God, and that though this thing has fallen into an abysmal sense of chaos because of the work of sin, because of an enemy at work, you are greater than all of it. You made it all, and you have good plans for us, even as we sang here this morning. You will bring it all back together in your Son. And so it's in your Son's name that we find our hope. And it's in your son's name that we pray in the name of Jesus, who will set all things right. We pray this. Amen. Amen. This is why I surrender 
This is my surrender. Here is where I lay it down. Every lie and every doubt. This is my surrender. And I will make room for you to do whatever you want to. Do whatever you want to, and I will make room for you. To do whatever you want to, do whatever you want to.
whatever you want to To do whatever you want to And I will make room for you To do whatever you want to Do whatever you want to Here is where I lay it down You are all I'm chasing now This is my surrender This is my surrender Here is where I lay it down You are all I'm chasing now This is my surrender surrender to you, Lord, to your purposes, to your plan. Guide us into that, Father. Bring us back to who we were meant to be. I pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, well, let's, uh, I kept you a long time, so once again, I'm sorry if you got kids back in Kidsgate, go back there and please thank the teachers who've been with them all this time, but, well, I'm falling over. I don't know why, but let's, uh, Speak this blessing on each other. May the peace of the Lord Christ be with you wherever he may send you. May he guide you through the wilderness and protect you through the storm. May he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders he has shown you. May he bring you home rejoicing once again into these doors. Go in peace, you children of God.